Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm William Hosea. Welcome again to this edition of Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 13 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening. I'm Jennifer Crossley. And in today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African American world of news all in the next hour here on Bring It On. But first the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization, IFCO, is a multi-issue national ecumenical agency which was founded in 1967 by progressive church leaders and activists. For the past five decades, IFCO has assisted hundreds of community organizations and public policy groups by providing technical assistance, training organizers, making it administering grants, and using our global network of grassroots organizers, clergy, and other professionals to advance the struggles of oppressed people for justice and self-determination. In 1988, a regularly scheduled passenger ferry boat traveling along Rio Escondido and southern Nicaragua was brutally attacked by Contra forces recruited and armed by the U.S. government. An IFCO study delegation led by IFCO founder, the Reverend Lucius Walker Jr. and the current executive director, Gail Walker, were on that ferry along with 200 Nicaraguan civilians. Two people were killed and 29 were wounded in that attack, including Reverend Walker. In response to the brutal act of terrorism, Reverend Walker prayed for a nonviolent response and conceived a new project that he named Pastors for Peace. The aims of that project are twofold to deliver material aid to support the victims of so-called low-intensity war in Latin America and to initiate education and advocacy projects to campaign for a more just and moral U.S. foreign policy in our hemisphere. And joining us by phone to acquaint us more intimately with Pastors for Peace and the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization, also known as IFCO, is Executive Director Gail Walker. Ms. Walker, welcome to Bring It On. Good afternoon. Thank you. Evening, rather. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, either one works for us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Gail, it's good to talk to you again. This is William. Yes, William. Um, good to talk to you, and, and it's good to hear my sister Jennifer there as well. I want to start off by reading something from uh, from uh, one of your publications, uh, mm-hmm. and it says IFCO has assisted the oppressed and disenfranchised in developing and sustaining community organizations to fight human and civil rights injustices. This work includes education about the realities of the poor in the U.S. and third world. So my question is, what are uh, some of those reality realities that you think the rest of the world needs to know about well you know i mean i'm i'm thank you for just this opportunity um, i'm i'm always happy to talk about it though it's history and and the work that we do um essentially the organization the way i like to describe uh, we, we refer to ifco as ifco 
IFCO is a nonprofit, faith-based organization really focused on issues related to social injustice or social justice. And as a result, the work that we've done has really connected to a variety of different um, issues, anything from uh, fighting the, um, the Ku Klux Klan, um, you know, uh, racial um, um, hatred and inequity to the rights of women, uh, children, um, trying to provide uh, educational opportunities um, where they might not exist, particularly uh, within communities of color, with um, especially um, being an organization that has been led and organized by um, African-American um, uh, black community uh, that has been an area of, of particular interest. and um, But outside of that arena, we have tried to work on um, things, really uh, issues related to people of color um, across the, the, um, the spectrum. So that includes uh, farm labor organizing um, in uh, various um, communities that has meant working with um, the uh, disenfranchised in the area of, um, like I said, um, women's empowerment, um, working for uh, educational opportunities, really looking wherever there is an opportunity to uh, explore and uh, lift up uh, injustice uh, as it relates to people of color in a variety of different uh, arenas. Um, that's what IFCO has been engaged in. Uh, since its inception in 1967, um, we were we were we were founded by a group of activist clergy and lay people um, who were interested in really trying to identify areas of injustice and finding ways that people of of not only people of faith but people of uh, uh, conscience could really uh, put. Uh, um, our interest and our uh, attention on um, trying to support uh, community initiatives that are um, aimed at trying to address those those uh, levels of injustice. So it's very broad and very uh, wide, the, uh, the typical issues that we've um, uh, focused on in the U.S. as well as internationally. Yeah, it is very broad, and and you've been uh, in existence for over fifty years now, correct? Yes, we just celebrated our fiftieth anniversary uh, last fall, uh, which was a wonderful celebration of you know fifty years of um, of, of work in, in these uh, various arenas, uh, and we continue to do that work. Um, I'm appreciate your referencing my father, the late uh, Reverend Lucius Walker Jr., who was our founding director, my father. Um, so I kind of grew up with ISCO, um, have been connected to it essentially since birth, but um, I'm very excited that we've not only in, uh, celebrated 50 years, but continue to do the work that ISCO was born to do, and that's fighting for justice uh, uh, more than 50 years ago, uh, now. I was going to ask you about the relationship uh, with uh, Reverend Lucius Walker, but thank you for uh, clarifying that. Um, yeah. Since you your mission uh, is so broad and you've been in existence for so long, do you have uh, any allies in government or specifically Congress? 
Well, we've really had uh, the great fortune of working with some very progressive. I mean, the, the issues that IFCO has been connected to have been, um, you know, um, very progressive in, in nature. Um, sometimes people have shied away from some of the work that we've done because um, they felt that we were a little too progressive, a little too radical. Um, but um, I grew up, I'll just say a little bit more about my, my dad and, and my connection to this work. He was a founding director. I've known IFCO and known about IFCO since I was a, a kid, uh, you know, and that was a long time ago. But uh, he, uh, you know, actually, uh, I think, you know, instilled in all of his children, there's me and four others, so there's five children, um, the importance of uh, standing up for, um, against, um, you know, oppression and standing up uh, for for justice. So that's really been very much at the center of the work that IFCO has done for many years. I'm one of five children who, you know, really was connected to the work that IFCO's been engaged in. Um, but it's it's been broad and wide, you know, the, uh, the, the work that we've done. Um, and not always readily um, accepted, but um, typically I think finding partners, partners in community organizations, within faith-based organizations, within churches that um, see the value of really speaking out. And I think, you know, acting out against uh, injustice has been very much a part of, you know, IFCO's uh, purpose. And it's very much a part of our DNA. And um, so my father, who passed away in 2010, um, we really uh, continue to move forward with the vision, uh, you know, that he um, had um, from the very beginning of of IFCO's, um, the the beginning of of the IFCO um, work. Uh, And we continue to uh, try to find ways to um, express ways of um, supporting that vision, that vision of, of fighting for social justice. Okay. And Gil, just um, if you could explain to the viewers or, or listeners, rather, um, we went, just mentioned about how uh, you guys were attacked on the ferry. And it seems like this is a very interesting and very powerful story. And so for some of us who are not familiar with that, um, do you know, can you tell us why you were attacked? Sure. No, thank you. Thank you so much for even just asking, because I think it's, an, and there's so much to this history, right? Mm-hmm. 50 years, and sometimes even, even as I'm explaining it, I get kind of lost in, in, in the narrative, but... Uh, but it's a very important part of, of who we are and, and, and the work that we do. We, uh, back in the, um, I'll just start real quickly, just saying, you know, IFCO was doing its work back in the 60s, doing work in the United States, and in the 70s we were doing a lot of work in um, Africa, doing support of African liberation movements. Um, uh, really, everything was really focused on how it is that we focus on injustice and how we can lift up those uh, issues of injustice and, and figure out ways that we can be supportive here in the United States. Uh, in the 80s, we began doing work in Central America, and that led us to um, being in um, the region of the world where 
uh, Ronald Reagan, who was uh, president at that time, had talked about things like low-intensity warfare um, and was really, I think, you know, focused on, uh, um, which is already, you know, an oxymoron, right? Low-intensity warfare. I I don't know how you wrap your head around that kind of a a concept, but um, we were... We found ourselves being in Nicaragua, uh, leading a, a delegation, a study delegation, people who wanted to go from the United States, wanted to go and understand the reality there. And um, we had offered and organized these kinds of delegations to uh, allow people to visit schools and churches and hospitals and really to see the reality there and to understand what... Um, was happening uh, in that country and what U.S. foreign policy was, you know, dictating at the time uh, under the Reagan administration. And we found ourselves on a passenger ferry leaving the predominantly black Creole-speaking section of Nicaragua heading back to the capital um, with 200 Nicaraguan civilians, as you mentioned, uh, on your opening and um, our boat, a passenger ferry, a very rudimentary passenger ferry, was attacked by uh, uh, these Contra forces. The Contra, or Contra, were the National Guardsmen of uh, Anastasio Somoza, who was the dictator at the time. This was the National Guardsmen, um, the, the police, you know, of, of uh, his um, of this this dictator. And um, Reagan was referring to them, to them as freedom fighters, uh, the good guys. And we found out firsthand that that was not the case. The boat that we were on essentially rode through an ambush. We were attacked. Uh, initially, there was individual gunfire followed by machine gunfire, followed by heavy artillery that shook this very rudimentary, you know, passenger uh, ferry from side to side. And uh, this was, of course, my first time, you know, with my dad with this, um, leading this delegation. And um, it was the most frightening experience to date that I've had uh, ever. Um, we thought we, that was it. We would, we would die. And um, we were uh, essentially uh, saved by the bravery of not only the captain, who, as he, w- he was riding through this um, uh, ambush, shot back at the uh, the Contra forces, but also these uh, Sandinistas, who were young revolutionary soldiers um, who had uh, studied under the the um, studies of a gentleman by the name of Sandino, who was the uh, revolutionary army at the time. It's a lot. It's a lot of information, but the point is uh, that Reagan was referring to the Contras as, as sort of the the uh, good guys, the, the Sandinistas as the bad guys. They were the ones who, who saved us. Twenty-nine people were wounded, two people who were killed, um, and my father came up with the idea of really uh, coming, um, uh, responding to this act of terror by helping other people to travel to Nicaragua and see that reality uh, for themselves. So that's the, uh, that's the way that this project, Pastors for Peace, was um, actually formed uh, once he had uh, recovered from his wounds and um, joined our, rejoined our delegation the next day. 
He said, we're going to continue to go to Cuba. I'm sorry, we started it with Nicaragua mm-hmm. and later um, uh, began our work with Cuba. Um, but as a way of uh, helping uh, to add uh, the voice of um, the people of the U.S. who wanted to really uh, formulate an alternative foreign policy uh, initially in Central America and, and, and branching out to other parts of that region. I'm sorry, who I, I missed one part. Who did you, you, you said someone saved you all. That was the, uh, the Sandinistas. Sandinistas. Sandinistas, yeah. Were, they were loyal to Daniel Ortega, isn't that correct? Yes, yes. Certainly Daniel Ortega was very much uh, in, um, you know, uh, leading, was, was uh, running uh, the government at that time, um, and has since then come back, but very much, yeah, loyal to the, the uh, Ortega uh Ortega, you know, was very much connected to the Sandinista. Yeah, I remember Ronald Reagan hated him. Yes. Yeah, it really did. And um, there was a headline that came out after this uh, this attack that we survived. <clears throat> Excuse me, in which um, uh, my father had called um, Ronald Reagan assassin. You know, he called mm-hmm. him, you know, assassino. And he was the headline the next day because uh, this was the president of the U.S. who was saying that these folks who were terrorizing the Nicaraguan um, people on a regular basis, on a regular everyday basis, uh, referring to them as the freedom fighters and uh, referring to the uh, Sandinistas as the terrorists, uh, well, they were the ones who saved the, the, um, the, the people who were on that boat uh, that included us and also 200 other Nicaraguan civilians. Wow. And can you, do you think that it had anything to do with the work that you, um, that you guys were doing? That's, thank you for even asking that question. I, I know that this is a lot. It's mm-hmm. a lot of information and a lot of history to throw out and for people to digest. But Jennifer, I, I really don't think that it had to do with us. Mm-hmm. The, the reality is that the, the Nicaraguan people we're dealing with this kind of, you know, uh, terrorist activity on uh, a daily basis. Um, they were being terrorized. They were being uh, really encouraged to to uh, withdraw support of the Sandinistas, the the uh, the people who were uh, had named themselves under the. Uh, there was an activist by the name of Sandino, Augusto Sandino. Um, from various years uh, prior, uh, these were, you know, grassroots folk mm-hmm. who were trying to support the peasant population of Nicaragua. The Contra were trying to encourage uh, dissent and, you know, mistrust mm-hmm. uh, under the Sandinista government at that time. And so we just happened to have been on that boat. And my father, I think, in his wisdom, said, you know what, we need to use our voice as U.S. people who happen to have been on this boat, boat because this is something that the Sandinistas, I mean, I'm sorry, the people of Nicaragua are dealing with on a regular day, a basis. We need to use our bo- voice to, uh, to speak out against this, lift this up. We took pictures. We were able to, you know, um, uh, get to the U.S. media 
to actually draw attention to the fact that this group that Ronald Reagan was referring to as the freedom fighters were in fact um, very much engaged in terrorizing the Nicaraguan uh, people. So I don't think it had anything to do with the fact that we we just happened to have been on that boat. Mm -hmm. And my father, who was a community activist and a um, a black Baptist pastor and um, uh, someone who um, didn't shy away from, you know, challenges like that, was able to use his voice and, of course, those of us who joined him uh, to speak out against that injustice and to to lift up um, the fact that this is something that the Nicaraguan people were dealing with uh, on a on a daily uh, basis. When we began taking pictures, they even said, "I mean, I thought, you know, once I reconnected with my dad, and he said, okay, we've got to start taking photographs of this.'" Um, and I thought, you know, how am I going to do this? My God, these people have just gone through. I mean. This was a horrible, it was carnage, you know, mm-hmm. there was blood everywhere. And, and he had the wisdom to say, no, we have to document this. We have to show, we need to not only speak about it, but we need to show, have p- pictures uh, illustrating what took place. And, um, and uh, the people understood that. They said, tell your government, tell your people, this is what we deal with regularly. This is not, you know, this is, you know, not, not what we want, and we need you to to uh to add your voice to this so it was it was quite a a life-changing experience for me personally but um also um i think a learning lesson for the people that we were able to educate once we returned back to the united states to talk about this horrific experience okay thank you now shifting gears for just a little bit um, one of the things that IFCO has is something called Pastors for Peace. And I was reading the press release um, that was released back in June, and it was basically talking about how um, this group is going to be, you know, doing tours um, about Cuba and actually going to visit Cuba. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, it uh, talked about how uh, this group is taking about 40 citizens to U.S. citizens to Cuba without applying for or accepting a license to travel to Cuba from the U.S. government. Can you explain um, to us and to the listeners uh, what made you guys come to this conclusion that you guys would not want to do this? Yeah, yeah. So so we began, the reason for going through that long description of what happened in Nicaragua is because it's very much related to the question you just asked about uh, about Cuba. And how, how is it that we, okay, we're in Nicaragua, how do we jump over to Cuba? Mm-hmm. We had some uh, very progressive clergy that were in uh, Cuba who were watching the work that we were doing in Nicaragua. We, we began doing that work and, and that part of the region, again, Ronald Reagan talking about low-intensity warfare in Nicaragua and El Salvador and Honduras and Guatemala, and we, were, we began organizing caravans under the name of Pastors for Peace. When my father um, emerged from the hospital after the attack of the Contra, he said, we're going to begin organizing caravans of, of humanitarian aid, but expressions of uh, friendship on the part of the people of the United States, and we're going to name that project Pastors for Peace. So Pastors for Peace is a project of IFCO, the mm-hmm. Interreligious Foundation, and 
um, we began uh, organi- organizing those right after this uh, counterattack. There were Cuban clergy who were watching what we were doing and said, you know, would you consider organizing a caravan? These are caravans that travel through the United States, collecting humanitarian aid, talking about U.S. foreign policy as it relates in these different parts of the world. Um, the the whole idea of the caravans was to create a an alternative foreign policy and or a people to people foreign policy. Ronald Reagan was had his foreign policy, but we knew that there the vast majority of people, if they understood what was really happening in our name as U.S. citizens, would want to. Uh, you know, really um, uh, identify their own foreign policy, a people's foreign policy. So we began doing that in Central America. Folk in Cuba, friends in Cuba, said, "Would you consider doing a similar thing in Cuba?" And um, I'm sorry, our friends in the it's it very complicated. Mm-hmm. Our friends in Central America said, "Would you be willing to do something similar in Cuba?" And that's how we began organizing the caravans to Cuba. But to get to your question about the the question of uh, organizing and taking aid to Cuba without a license really re- um, refers to the U.S. government's insistence that the only way that people can travel to Cuba and go to Cuba is by uh, filing a license, saying that you um, are a educator, uh, a uh, medical person, uh, you fit one of 13 different categories of people who can legally travel to Cuba. And um, we have always said people from the United States need to be able to go to Cuba freely without necessarily being restricted to a license, a particular category. Uh, And um, a lot of people are able to travel thanks to President Obama, a lot of things opened up and people were able to travel from various different U.S. cities to travel to Cuba. Uh, But the reality is that still you have to fit a certain category, um, legal, educational, um, health person. Um, And we've always said that anybody ought to be able to go to Cuba. And so that's why we have continued year after year to organize a caravan directly to Cuba that has refused to um, sign off on a license because we feel that the only way that people are really going to fully understand Cuba is to go um, for themselves, see, you know, see Cuba directly and not necessarily have to be fit in one of those 13 different categories because not, every, not everyone does. Um, and uh, so we've done the caravans as an active uh, travel challenge, as an act of civil disobedience where we said we have a right to go and see Cuba for ourselves, and we're going to do that without applying for or accepting a U.S. government pers- uh, permission or license uh, to do so. So that's why we've um, uh, organized these annual caravans to Cuba without uh, um, government permission uh, to speak out and act out much in the way that 
um, Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi and others who have been committed to um, uh, civil disobedience have done so. For our listening audience, we are speaking with Gail Walker, Executive Director of the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization, uh, also IFCO. So, so Gail, in in, uh, traveling to Cuba uh, under as an act of civil civil disobedience, are you not concerned about uh, the government, uh, especially this administration, and and even considering that they have just walked back several of the uh, of the provisions that Obama put in place to allow travel to, to Cuba? So are you not worried about the government trying to put a stop uh, to, to your efforts or, or maybe even uh, charging you and your organization? Uh, no, William, a really good point. And we don't know what kind of response there may be. Um, we have, you know, done these caravans of friendship. We call them friendshipments to, car- uh, to Cuba since, uh, 1992. We began the caravans to Central America in, in 88, but the first caravan to Cuba was in 1992. The reality is, and this is really speaks to the, you know, insidiousness of this policy, of U.S. policy toward Cuba, is that we really um, risk fines, fines of $250,000 um, 10 years in prison for traveling, potentially traveling to Cuba without uh, a license. And so there are, you know, these risks that, that um, are, are presented uh, that, we, that we face. Nobody has actually um, encountered either of these things, but they are the, the rules that are on the books. People may ask, you know, why? Why? Why would you have that kind of, you know, uh, face that kind of fine or that level of imprisonment? This is all under the U.S. government's Trading with the Enemy Act. The idea of going to Cuba is a uh, is seen as, uh, you know, trading with the enemy, which is ludicrous when you consider the fact that President uh, Barack Obama really, you know, opened up uh, opportunities for um, people to travel. Um, still restricted, still under license, but the fact that, you know, President Obama said, you know, when he opened up this opportunity after dialoguing with President, Cuban President um, uh, uh, Raul Castro, that, uh, you know, the, the, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. We've been doing this since you know, the 1960s, uh, now going on 60 years, um, to have this policy toward Cuba, uh, it's time to to change those relations. Despite the fact that we had a sitting president who, you know, really began trying to open up these relations after, you know, years of embargo. Many of us refer to it as as a blockade because of the way in which... Other countries are, you know, forced to suspend trade and, and relations with Cuba. Uh, it's 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 insane, but it, it those those policies exist. Those um, those laws are still on the books. So, do you have any uh, advocates or allies and and government now 
I appreciate that because I know I didn't answer that question before. I think it was Jennifer asked. And one of the great things is that we've got members of Congress, um, particularly the um, um, Black um, Congressional um, Caucus, yeah. uh, who have been very supportive. Uh, Karen um, Karen Bass, but uh, Barbara Lee, um, are two. Barbara Lee is a senior uh, member of Congress. Um, Karen Bass, um, before he... Uh, uh, was able to resign. Uh, Charles Rangel. Uh, there are members members of the um, the uh, Latino and Congressional uh, Caucus uh, that have been very supportive and very um, much um, you know an ally in in this work. And that's important. That's important to have their uh, their their involvement. Uh, so that's been that's been uh, you know an important um, uh, support base for us within uh, members of Congress, um, despite these these threats that were um, those of us who participate in the caravan um, faced with. Okay. Now, there are different groups of poor and oppressed people in America, but aside from basic human needs, uh, their struggles are not always the same. Do you think that there is a difference between poor and oppressed people in America and people in Central America? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. And, you know, often we're asked, you know, why are you doing the work in, uh, you know, whether it be in Nicaragua or in, in El Salvador and, and, and Southern Africa, liberation movements, when there's so much, you know, struggle going on here. And um, our response and I believe this is that there's very much a, a, a connection between those uh, struggles that we're dealing with here particularly those of us and the, the um, you know the African American community black community here and what we're experiencing or, or seeing witnessing and these other nations that I've referred to and I think that the the, the linkage is you know we're, we're we're dealing with struggles within the diaspora and that diaspora is broad and wide, and and uh, it's it's here and it's in other parts of the country. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that they're different, and I think that there's uh, also similarities between some of the those challenges that we face in various parts of the uh, in, uh, various various parts of the the diaspora, as well as what we face here in the United States. Um, one of the reasons that we continue to do the work we do in Cuba is to be able to talk about, you know, what is it that Cuba is doing um, and, and how is it that Cuba is representing an example of what perhaps we ought to be supporting uh, for our communities uh, in other parts of the world, whether it relate to health or education or the environment. Uh, and too often, you know, the misinformation, the prevalent misinformation about, you know, Cuba uh, as an example of, you know, how it is that we address some of the, the ills that our communities are, you know, our communities of, of black and brown people, um, not just in the United States, but in other parts of the world. How is it that we address those? Um, we, we've got, you know, Cuba to look to, I think, as, as an uh, an incredible example, and that's why we, um, that's another part of what the Caravan Project is about. It's really ch helping to educate people about what some of those um, 
alternative uh, views of, uh, you know, how we address some of these social ills um, across across the diaspora. So, Gail, in the line of work that you do, um, especially in Cuba, what can you tell us about the population of black folks in Cuba? You know, one of the things, one of the things that we we do is to not only organize these annuals, car, annual caravans, but also to um, take people on on delegations, delegations that may relate to health or education or uh, you know um, culture, um, environmental issues, etc. Um, because we want people to actually see that um, uh, you know a really large population um, or seg- seg- uh, segment of the population in Cuba is um, Afro-Cuban, that they really look like us, you know, and yeah. have um, been able to really experience um, um, what it means to live under a revolution that has uh, provided opportunities for the vast majority of folk who, prior to Cuba's revolution, were living under abject poverty, or not, you know, education was, you know, non-existent. Um, healthcare, folk who were dying from regular everyday diseases were able to uh, really uh, get the kind of support and, uh, and services that uh, our, our families needed. Um, but one of the exciting things I think about Cuba, and, and yeah, I, my first trip to Cuba was in um, 1992, and seeing, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, folk here look like my people, my family, my, you know, and people will ask me all the time, why is, why do you do this? Are you, are you Cuban? And my response is, I'm not Cuban. My father wasn't Cuban. But I think part of the the appeal is that Cuba offers an alternative for some of the stuff that, you know, our communities across the diaspora have encountered. And and that's something I think it's important to celebrate and to lift up and to talk about uh, as as we, we talk about, you know, what is it that we need to do to help our communities um, address the, the, the various challenges that, you know, we address, um, not just in the U.S., but, I think, like I said, across the diaspora. And so we have uh, discussed, uh, you've shared with us how the organization uh, has its roots and uh, the trip to Nicaragua, and then we talked about uh, the work that you do in Cuba. So what can you tell us about the work that IFCO does here in the uh, U.S. of A.? So a lot of the work that we've been doing has certainly been connected to Cuba, but we've also been supportive of different um, projects um, that are U.S.-based that are dealing with things from, you know, prison injustice to, uh, you know, educational, you know, uh, disparities or opportunities to provide, particularly for our young people, you know, opportunities to, to uh, um, explore ways of uh, uh, supporting, you know, educational opportunities. Um, some of the grassroots community organizations that IFCO has supported um, and continues to support um, really 
um, and embrace those uh, initiatives. And so that's a very important piece of, you know, IFCO's identity uh, that we continue to, you know, connect to. I will just, go, reaching back to Cuba, and one of the things that I wanted to mention is this uh, incredible opportunity for IFCO to support the a, a medical school um, scholarship program. Um, this is our Cuban friends who uh, are the Cuban people, the Cuban government, that has offered a medical school scholarship for people who want to go to Cuba to study medicine with the only understanding being that they will return back to the United States to serve in underserved communities. And IFCO has been blessed to be the entity uh, here in the U.S. to identify U.S. people who are... um, interested in, you know, in, in applying for this scholarship uh, and then, uh, you know, helping to facilitate that process for them to uh, go to Cuba, go to med school with the understanding that they'll be uh, able to return and serve here in the U.S. Um, it's, it's still Cuba-related, but it's very much related to the work that we're doing in um, particularly black and brown communities in the United States that uh, have identified, work to identify young people who want to become doctors. Um, I think part of the reason why I'm so excited about this project, this process that we've been able to engage in, is because there are a lot of black, brown, young people who might say, wow, you know, as a young person, I want to become a doctor. And then once they are old enough to understand what that cost is of doing that and might recognize that, you know, uh, $250,000, you know, uh, med school scholarship, you know, not scholarship, but the bill is more than than they can uh, afford, those, those dreams are dashed, you know. Um, so this is a great opportunity for young people who are who have the wherewithal, the passion, the commitment to become physicians can do that completely free of charge with the only understanding being that they will return to the U.S. and serve. And there have been 175 graduates now. We just um, finished the graduation uh, uh, just yesterday or two days ago. Uh, the last group of uh, U.S., not just U.S., but uh, including U.S. graduates. Uh, there's about 75, 80 students that are currently in the program. There's another 10 that are going to be going down in August. Um, and IFCO has been really blessed to be the organization that is helping to provide this opportunity uh, with, the, of course, the, you know, the wonderful assistance of, of our Cuban friends to provide this great gift, not only for young people who want to become doctors, but for the communities that they're going to return to the U.S. to serve. And um, so that's another way in which we've continued to do the the work of community uh, organizing here in the U.S. 
Well, Gail, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I think that was a really good note to uh, end the yeah. interview on. Um, right. But I want to uh, say that we wish you much success and safe travels when on your trip to uh, Cuba. Thank you so much, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about this work. I, uh, I deeply appreciate that. Okay. Our thanks to Gail Walker, Executive Director of the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization, IFCO. She joined us to acquaint with this organization, along with Pastors for Peace, whose twofold aim is to deliver material aid to support the victims of so-called low-intensity war in Latin America and to initiate education and advocacy projects to campaign for a more just and moral U.S. foreign policy in our hemisphere. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff, and that address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure that we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org.
Okay, I had to uh, go and study up with Babylon so I can read this next one. Um, for our continuing salute to summer, you just heard Nolores, sung by Gloria Stefan. This is from her CD project, 90 Melas. This selection features Carlos Santana on electric guitar, Jose Feliciano on acoustic guitar, Saul Cuevas on bass, and Sheila E. on timbales, and Luis Enrique on condos and bongos. Uh, excuse me, congos and bongos. Gloria was born Gloria Maria Milagrosa Fajardo. At the time, her father, Jose Fajardo, was a personal bodyguard to Cuban President Batista's wife. Her mother was a kindergarten teacher. The family immigrated to Miami in 1959 following Fidel Castro's successful overthrow of the Batista government. Hey, hey, how, how was my Spanish? Uh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you got it. You got it. This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to Twitter.com and search for WFHB News. Or you can always visit WFHB's news website at WFHB.org slash news. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Jennifer Crossley. I think we will start with Trump demands Roger Goodell make a stand on players kneeling for anthem. John Bowden of The Hill wrote that President Trump took aim at NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell on Friday in a tweet calling upon the football executive to further punish players who protest by kneeling during the national anthem. The president wrote Friday that Goodell, noting his $40 million a year salary, must make a stand against mostly African-American NFL players who have protested police brutality and racism by taking a knee during the national anthem before games. And this is quoted from Trump. The NFL national anthem debate is alive and well again. Can't believe it. Isn't it in contract that players must stand at attention hand on heart? No, it's not. The $40 million commissioner must now take a stand. First time kneeling out for game, second time kneeling out for season, no pay, Trump wrote. Trump's tweet comes after the Football League announced Thursday it would freeze its newly implemented policy requiring players to remain standing during the national anthem's performance. The NFL implemented the policy this spring following widespread player protests last year, which brought the league into the sights of Trump and the White House. The policy was met by a challenge last week from the NFL Players Association, which filed a grievance against the NFL over the policy, which is widely unpopular with players. In order to allow this constructive dialogue to continue, we have come to a standstill agreement on the NFLPA's grievance and on the NFL's anthem policy, a statement from the NFL read. No new rules relating to the anthem will be issued or enforced for the next several weeks while these confidential discussions are ongoing. 
the NFL and NFL Players Association reflect the great values of America, which are repeatedly demonstrated by the many players doing extraordinary work in the communities across our country to promote equality, fairness, and justice. The statement continued. Our shared focus will remain on finding a solution to the anthem issue through mutual good faith comp commitments outside of litigation. Mm. It, probably because it wouldn't stand up in court. Yeah, there's freedom of speech. And I, I just feel like it's uh, once again, it's never been about the national anthem. Right. It is. That's where the focus is continue to be shifted and the commander in chief if that's what he wants to call himself um keeps weighing in on this issue and i think personally he should be worried about how he didn't stand up to putin last week so he should go <laughs> mind one. his business good one yeah <laughs> white man who threatened to kill maxine waters gets insanely weak punishment anthony scott lloyd got a slap on the wrist um, Parker Riley of News One writes that ever since Representative Maxine Waters began speaking out against the travesty of the Trump administration, she has been enemy, public enemy number one of his worshipers. And in addition, Democrats have turned their back on her when she is literally putting her life on the line for people who are being further marginalized and hateful policies. Waters has been open about receiving death threats and one man was caught and sadly, he had gotten a bizarrely weak punishment. In October, Anthony Lloyd, or I'm sorry, Anthony Scott Lloyd, 45, called Waters' office and left a violent voicemail message, which said, in part, if you continue to make threats towards the president, you're going to wind up dead, Maxine, because we'll kill you. The Los Angeles Times also reports that he also made homophobic and racist comments. Lloyd claimed the reason why he made the threat was because... He was upset with Waters for comments criticizing the president on President Trump on a talk radio show. Mm. That's uh, he he doesn't have enough bullets apparently. Know? But uh, you know I don't want to start anything, but it sounds like Maxine might be packing. I well, and at the end she says, um, thankfully Waters is not afraid, as she once said. All I have to say is this. If you shoot me, you better shoot straight because there's nothing like a wounded animal. That's what I'm talking about. That was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues. Send your comments to bring it on at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm William Hosea. Our thanks to Gail Walker, Executive Director of the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization, IFCO. She joined us to acquaint with this organization, along with Pastors for Peace, whose twofold aim is to deliver material aid to support the victims of so-called low-intensity war in Latin America and to initiate education and advocacy projects to campaign for a more just and moral U.S. foreign policy in our hemisphere. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Chris Martin. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Jennifer Crossley. Tune in next Monday, July 30th at 6 o'clock p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here in your community radio station, WFHB. 
You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.